All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, truly furnished to every good work. The Bible is an amazing book with a history all its own. It's a history of toil and sacrifice on the part of countless people who loved the Word of God. Because of inspiration and preservation, both divine and human, the Bible has been given into our hand, and we can take our Bible in our hand and say, I know that I have the Word of God. I know what to do to be saved. I know what to do to stay saved. I know how to get from earth to heaven and live with God forever. The Bible has been transmitted through the years by means of writing. Man had a spoken language almost from his creation. Language was given to man by God. No one has ever spoken who was not first spoken to. We speak because other people first spoke to us. We learned to speak by mimicking what we heard. We speak English because it was English that was spoken to us. The Bible shows us that God spoke to man first. Man learned to speak from God. And then man spoke to God using oral language. We don't know whether Adam and Eve had a written language. They were quite bright, and they were certainly capable of developing a written language if they needed to. But whether they bothered during their lifetime to develop one or not, I don't know. I do think that as often as husbands and wives need to leave notes for each other, it's probably likely that they did develop a written language. Sometime during Adam's long lifetime, surely somebody developed a system of writing, but I can't prove that. We do know this much. If Adam and Eve did not have a written language, then writing was developed not long after their time. Writing originally was done in pictures, in hieroglyphics, and over time, alphabets were developed. We have inscriptions on monuments and rocks that go way, way back. We know that writing existed in the days of Abraham. Critics of the Bible used to say a number of years ago that Moses could not have written the Pentateuch because writing did not exist in his day 1,500 years before Christ. Now archaeology has conclusively shown that written language existed even in Abraham's day, 1950 years before Christ, and even hundreds of years prior to that. So we're getting back there to within a few hundred years of Adam's time. Adam lived almost to 3000 B.C. himself. Early writing was done on stone as it was done at Mount Sinai by the finger of God. It was also done on clay. Huge libraries containing thousands of clay tablets have been unearthed in Mesopotamia. Soft clay was made into tablets. Writing was impressed on them with a stylus and then baked in ovens. In the fourth chapter of the book of Ezekiel, the prophet sketched a plan of the city of Jerusalem on clay in this manner. Leather scrolls were used. Historically, writing was done on animal bones and on wood and on metal and on potsherds, which are pieces of broken pottery. But the most used writing material at the time of the New Testament was being written was papyrus. Papyrus plants grew in abundance along the Nile River. In the 8th chapter of the book of Job, verse 11, the question is asked, can the rush grow up without mire? In other words, can the papyrus grow without a marsh? Probably the bulrushes that baby Moses' ark were made from when his mother hit him and Pharaoh's daughter found him were made from papyrus plants. 
papyrus plants grow from 12 to 15 feet high. They have a triangular stalk about the size of a man's wrist. And when this papyrus was harvested, it was cut into foot-long sections and split lengthwise. The pith was removed from the center and made into thin strips. These thin strips would be laid down side by side on the top of a flat table vertically. And then a second strip was laid across them horizontally and formed the first Uh, joined to the first layer by glue and moisture and by pressure. And after then drying and polishing all of that, you had a nice sturdy piece of what we'd call paper. Paper made from trees hadn't been invented yet. The worst trouble with papyrus was that it was relatively fragile and subject to deterioration over time, especially in the rainy climates. And that's why we don't have as many papyri as we would like to have from the early centuries. Later, Later on, writing was done on parchment, or vellum, these were much more durable than papyrus was. Parchment was made from animal skins, but it was not tanned, and that's what made it different from leather. Vellum vellum was a higher grade and was made from the skins of younger animals and sometimes was even made from the skins of unborn animals. In New Testament times, often a sheet of papyrus was used by itself. Short letters like 2 John and 3 John were almost undoubtedly written on a single sheet of papyrus each. For a longer work, papyrus sheets were joined together at the left and right margins to make a scroll. The maximum length for a scroll that was usable made out of papyrus was about 40 feet. But a scroll of 35 feet or so would hold one of the longer books of the New Testament like Matthew or Acts or Luke. As long as the roll form was being used, it was never possible to have the New Testament all in one volume. The New Testament fully copied out would require a roll of more than 200 feet. So the New Testament in its earliest stages was a collection of scrolls that was either kept in a cabinet or in a bucket. In the 1st or 2nd century A.D., though, the papyrus scroll began to give way to the codex. A codex is just what we call a book. Instead of being joined at both margins, a codex was just all joined together at one margin, and then you could turn the pages like we do today. And the book form was and is a lot easier to use than scrolls. When the Apostle Paul wrote an inspired letter and sent it to a church, What he was sending was absolutely perfect and exactly what the Lord wanted that church to have from Paul. Inspiration ensured that. The word inspired means breathed into. God breathed. When Paul sent, he knew that he was sending the word of God. And he said to his recipients, you need to acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is not the word of man, but the word of God. Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, was authorized and empowered to write the word of God. And so were the other apostles and prophets, prophets both New Testament and Old. The original writings called autographs were perfect. The Bible was written originally in three languages, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. The major portion was written in Hebrew, a smaller portion in Aramaic, and the New Testament primarily in the Greek language. Just a few chapters of the Old Testament were written in Aramaic. Almost all the Old Testament books were written in Hebrew with just a smattering of Aramaic. Hebrew is written what we would call backward from right to left. Its alphabet is without vowels, but a system of vowels has been developed and added to it. 
Aramaic was a kindred language to Hebrew. About 500 years before Christ, it became the common language in the Promised Land. And about nine chapters of the Bible are written in Aramaic, most of the, mostly in the books of Ezra and Daniel. But there are a few words of Aramaic scattered throughout the New Testament also. The New Testament books, though, were written in the Greek language, the most versatile, beautiful, free-flowing language the world has yet known. The Greeks had more descriptive terms than any other language. They could discriminate between nuances of thought in a marvelous way. So that when we read that when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, we should know that one of the several factors contributing to the fullness of that particular time was the development and the well-nigh universal use of the Greek language in the Roman Empire. The gospel was to be proclaimed to every creature under heaven in the first 30 years of the church. Their line went out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The New Testament writers made use of a language that was known almost everywhere. Now, when Paul wrote an inspired letter to a church, either with his own hand or through an amanuensis or an assistant who would take dictation and write down the word of God from the lips of Paul, before Paul released that, he would go through it to see that it was right, and then he would place his own signature on that, showing that it was written as he intended it, guided by the Holy Spirit. And that letter was then sent to the church that it was addressed to, and it was read publicly in the next available assembly of that church. And you can imagine the reaction when a church received a letter from Paul and it was read publicly. This is the word of God. Would you read that again? I didn't get it all the first time. It was read in the church over and over again. And how long do you suppose it was before somebody made a copy of that letter? That must have happened just almost immediately. Today, we'd just take it back to the copy machine and make as many copies as anybody wanted. But they made their copies by hand, manuscript copies. I sure would have wanted one. I imagine most of you would have wanted one too. If I could have been able to write in those days, I would have taken it and made my own copy as soon as I possibly could. It wouldn't take long to just sit down and write out the average New Testament letter. So I'd make my copy, you would make your copy. Soon we're making copies of copies, but they were all made by hand. Would every one of these copies that was made by multiple members of the congregation be exactly the same? Or would there be little differences that would be creeping in due to human error? Maybe a word misspelled or a word left out. Paul wrote by inspiration, but I did not copy by inspiration. There would be variations, but they would almost all be trivial, not affecting the meaning. Because until the invention of printing, which didn't happen till about 1450, the Bible was copied by hand, letter by letter, word by word. And each new copy would be limited by its parent copy, that is the copy from which it was made. It's limited by the variance in the manuscript on which it relies. We can easily understand that this process ensures that probably no two copies are going to be precisely the same. Each one of these little changes is known as a textual variant. A variant is a single difference between two manuscript copies. It can involve a single letter or a word or a verse or a block of verses. As an example of this, let's say that somebody makes four copies of the book of Colossians. A while ago, I quoted from Colossians 1.23, that the gospel was preached to every creature which is under heaven. Suppose that a person making his first three copies 
rights every creature which is under heaven. But when he gets to the fourth one, he's so familiar with what he's writing that he doesn't look back at the text and he just uses a synonym. He's thinking in terms of concepts rather than thinking verbatim. So he writes every person which is under heaven instead of every creature which is under heaven. Whoever in the future copies from that fourth manuscript would be unable to reclaim the word creature but would perpetuate the use of the word person. And all copies made from his copy would also be limited by that change. Each new generation of copies would include these sorts of tiny changes that would make each manuscript differ from the original that came directly from Paul. Now, all these manuscripts were written in the Greek language. Sometimes people are alarmed by the fact that we don't have any of the original documents of the Bible. The autographed copies of the, that came from the apostles are gone. As far as anybody knows, they are completely gone and are never coming back. It would be amazing if we found some of them, but that's not likely to happen. And even if we did, it would really be rough proving that that's what we had found. All we have are copies of copies of copies. But yet, there's no reason to be concerned about that. There's no reason at all to jump to the far-fetched conclusion that we don't have the New Testament as God intended. That is simply not true. Although the, the idea gets a lot of press in these days. That is an uninformed conclusion that's being advocated by a lot of people who in some cases even know better, but they're advocating it anyway. There's plenty of evidence to establish the integrity of the text of the New Testament. We can confidently conclude that we have the Word of God as He intended it. And I want to stress this point because the current atmosphere in our society assumes that the text of the Bible has been corrupted. This is what the average man on the street thinks in 2015, or at least this seems to be the case. How often have you heard people say, well, we can't be sure that we have the Bible in its original form? Or people will say, look at how many translations there are, and they all differ from each other. Muslims say that the Bible has been corrupted and only the Quran is fully God's Word. Mormons also say that the Bible is corrupted where it differs with the Book of Mormon. Liberal theologians and skeptics and atheists all insist that the Bible was altered in transmission over the centuries. Take this statement by Suzanne Hanif in her book, What Everyone Should Know About Islam and Muslims. Although parts of earlier revelations, such as segments of the Torah given by Moses, the Psalms revealed to David, and the Evangel revealed to Jesus still remain, they are so heavily intermixed with human additions and alterations that it's very difficult to determine what part of them constitutes the original message, as many biblical scholars admit only too readily, much less to guide one's own life by them. Akbar Ahmed, professor of Islamic studies at American University in Washington, D.C., wrote, these religious systems wandered from the straight path and eventually needed further divine instruction. Islam came in at the end, filling all the gaps, correcting all the errors, dotting the I's, and crossing the T's. The Book of Mormon says in 1 Nephi chapter 13, For behold, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. And the result of all this is stated further in 1 Nephi 13, that an exceeding many do stumble, yea, insomuch that Satan hath great power over them. You know, when I was a boy back in the 1950s, most Americans, or at least it seemed to me in my little world, most Americans believed that the Bible is the Word of God. 
When I went out to play with my friends, they came from homes where people at least gave a nominal belief to the fact that the Bible is the Word of God. But attacks against it began to escalate, resulting in the erosion of American attitudes and beliefs about the reliability of the Bible. Some of you can remember Look Magazine, which we used to have on many tables in many homes. Here, This is from an article from the February 26, 1952 edition of Look Magazine. The article is entitled, The Truth About the Bible, and immediately under the title are these words. Students of the Scriptures say the New Testament we read today may have 50,000 errors. Here is the story of a far-reaching study by leading theologians to get an authentic text. And let me read you just a little bit of this article so you can get its tone. How accurate is the Holy Bible that we read today? Was there really, in Jesus' time, an adulteress whose accusers were sternly told, He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her? Did Jesus really say, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel? Or, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved? Did St. John himself write the reference to the Holy Trinity attributed to him? From information modern scholars have developed, the answer to each question is probably no. The impact of such writing over time has been catastrophic. Professor Bart Ehrman at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is a well-known and popular published author. Bart Ehrman grew up in Lawrence, Kansas and went to Lawrence High School. He was, when he was a sophomore in high school, he had a born-again experience like so many people have. And then later, he studied at Moody Bible Institute and then at Wheaton College in Illinois and finally at Princeton Theological Seminary. I've often said that the seminaries should be called cemeteries because so much faith is buried there. This is what happened to Bart Ehrman, and he has written now at least five New York Times bestsellers challenging the integrity of the text of the New Testament in particular. One of his books is called Forged. Another one is called Misquoting Jesus. And these are having a tremendous impact. The Da Vinci Code had a great impact, as written by Dan Brown. Not long ago, I had an hour-long conversation with a hearse driver on on the way to his cemetery because he had bought into the message of the Da Vinci Code hook, line, and sinker. Authors like Dan Brown count on people's ignorance and gullibility. So we've come to the place now where many Americans no longer believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and many, many more who think it might be at least aren't sure about it. If you ask them, they'll say, well, yes, but then when you probe a little deeper, you find that they believe that errors and contradictions have slipped into the Bible and made its text just all uncertain so that we can't tell what is what. So that's why we're talking about this particular subject. Has the Bible, from its inception over the centuries, as it's been transmitted from generation to generation, been corrupted with errors? This can be a complicated discussion, but it pays big dividends if you understand the facts. Although no two manuscript copies agree in every detail, the degree of accuracy achieved by most of the scribes was remarkably high. It's easy for somebody to get an inflated sense of these changes and quickly jump to the rash conclusion that God's Word has been corrupted, and that is simply not the case. Let me read you an illustration that was used many years ago by J.W. McGarvey to depict the reality of the situation as it exists in our time. McGarvey was an outstanding student of the Bible. He died in 1911. He did considerable evangelistic work in the area of Missouri that I happen to live in, very geographically close to the area where 
I live now. And he formulated this comparison to give us a sense of the transmission of the New Testament. Here's what J.W. McGarvey had to say, and I hope it won't throw you because he's writing in the language of the early 20th century or late 19th century. And uh, the wording is just a little different, but I think you can follow this. Here's what J.W. McGarvey said. The case is like that of a certain will. A gentleman left a large estate entailed to his descendants of the third generation, and it was not to be divided until a majority of them should come of age. During the interval, many copies of the will were circulated among parties interested, many of these being copies of copies. In the meantime, the office of record in which the original was filed was burned with all of its contents. When the time for the division drew near, a prying attorney gave out among the heirs the report that no two existing copies of the will were alike. This alarmed them all and set them busily to work to ascertain the truth of the report. On comparing copy with copy, they found the report to be true. But on close inspection, it was discovered that the differences consisted in errors of spelling or grammatical construction, some mistakes in figures corrected by the written numbers, and some other differences not easily accounted for. But that in none of the copies did these mistakes affect the rights of the heirs. In the essential matters for which the will was written in the first place, the representations of all the copies were precisely the same. The result was that they divided the state the estate with perfect satisfaction to all, and they were more certain that they had executed the will of their grandfather than if the original copy had been alone preserved because it might have been tampered with in the interest of a single heir. But the copies, defective though they were, could not have been. Why couldn't they have been? Well, because you had them in your dresser drawer. You had them in your attic. You had that copy where you had control over it. Nobody could get to it and change it. Very important point. McGarvey goes on. So it is with the New Testament. The discovery of errors in the copies excited alarm, leading to inquiry, which developed the fact that he who has the most imperfect copy has in it all that the original contained of doctrine, duty, and privilege. That's from J.W. McGarvey, Evidences of Christianity, page 17. And it's an excellent illustration showing by parallel circumstance that our New Testament has not been corrupted even though we do not have the originals and it has been copied over the centuries. Now, considering these Greek documents, we need to understand that there were two basic forms of handwriting. One of them used all capital letters. These manuscripts that used all capital letters were called unseals. The letters were pressed together without punctuation and without spaces. Unseals were used mostly up to the 9th or 10th centuries. And then there was a modified form after that of cursive script that was written in a running hand. And those manuscripts that used the running hand script were known as minuscules. We have unseals and we have minuscules. And since the unseal writing style predated the minuscule form, typically when we find a manuscript in the minuscule handwriting, we know that it's more likely that it is a late manuscript. An unsealed manuscript is more likely to be older. The current number of Greek manuscripts that contain part or all of the New Testament is 5,795. 5,795 Greek manuscripts containing all or part of the New Testament. That is a tremendous amount of material 
by which we can reconstruct the original writing of the New Testament. Some of these are papyri, some of them are uncials, some of them are minuscules, some of them are lectionaries that had blocks of the New Testament written in them for the public reading of Scripture at various times of the year. We can see from them how the New Testament read from that point in time when a particular lectionary was made. The Chester Beatty papyri, We have portions of the book of Matthew to Acts from the first half of the third century. We have 86 leaves of Paul's epistles from 200 A.D. and Revelation 19.10 through Revelation 17.2 from the mid to late third century. That is very early. The John Ryland's papyrus is even earlier. It contains verses from the 18th chapter of the book of John dating clear back to the first half of the second century. The first half of the second century. That's just a little while after the Apostle John wrote it. The John Ryland's fragment could very well be from a first copy of the original book of John. It's that old. The Bodmer papyrus has portions of John from 200 A.D. We're not going to go through all of these, but there are 127 papyri that we have at this time. Let's talk just briefly about some of the unseals. There is the Codex Sinaiticus. The discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus is very interesting. Constantine von Tischendorf took a trip to the Middle East in 1843 searching for biblical manuscripts. While visiting at St. Catherine's Monastery at Mount Sinai in 1844, he saw a wastebasket containing leaves of parchment that were being used to stoke the fire in the monastery's oven. Upon examining these, he found that they contained a part of the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That's what he was there looking for in the first place. So he asked if he could take these scraps to his room. He convinced the monks to stop burning the leaves, but his obvious excitement over these leaves worried the monks, and they became less than cooperative in providing additional information about the manuscripts that were there at the monastery. So years passed. Tischendorf went other places looking for manuscript. He tried to find more manuscripts at St. Catherine's Monastery in 1853 to no avail. Six years later, in 1859, he visited again, and this time, on the very last night before he was going to leave, he presented a copy of the Septuagint, which he had published, to the steward of the monastery. And upon receiving this gift, the steward of the monastery mentioned that he too had a Septuagint. And from the closet in his cell, he pulled out a manuscript wrapped in a red cloth. It was the Codex Sinaiticus, which at that time was at least 1,500 years old. Tischendorf, having learned his lesson from years earlier, hid his amazement but asked if he could examine it. He spent all night long studying it, and in the morning he tried to buy it but was refused. And the story of how he obtained it is long and involved and controversial, but eventually Tischendorf was able to retrieve what was left of the Codex Sinaiticus. And today the various parts of it are kept in the biggest library in the world, the British Library, and in three other institutions. And it's also viewable online in high resolution has high resolution images. It contains the entire New Testament and most of the Old Testament and it's from the 4th century. It's one of the great unseals that we have. Another unseal is the Alexandrinus. We have there the entire New Testament except uh, Matthew up to chapter 25 verse 6 and some of John and some of 2 Corinthians. It contains the entire Old Testament and it's from the 5th century. We also have the Codex Vaticanus. It lacks the first 46 chapters of Genesis, about 30 Psalms and Hebrews 9.14 to the end of the New Testament. It's from the mid-4th century. All in all, we have 320 of these unseals that are written in capital letters and are very, very old. We have 
No surprise to anybody, we have more minuscules than anything else because the majority of manuscripts that have survived are naturally going to be those of the later manuscripts. We have 2,903 minuscules and we have almost that many lectionaries. Lectionaries are manuscripts that contain readings from the New Testament to be used in conjunction with the so-called Christian calendar. Of these lectionaries, we have 2,445. So we have a total of 5,795 Greek manuscripts and there's no other book from antiquity that even begins to compare with this with that kind of manuscript evidence. And we not only have Greek manuscripts, but we have other categories of evidence by which to construct the original New Testament. We have ancient translations, for example. There was a very early need to translate the New Testament Greek into other languages, even though Greek was the common language of the empire. People wanted the New Testament in their native tongue. Even if you knew the Greek language, wouldn't you also want a copy of the Bible in English? I would, and I think that everybody would want the the Bible in their own native tongue as well as what other languages they could have it in. So Latin copies were made. The Old Testament, uh, the, the Old Latin was eventually standardized by Jerome in the so-called Latin Vulgate. There were Egyptians that wanted the Bible in their own language, so translations were made into the Coptic dialects, both the Baharic and the Sahidic. There, there were Syriac copies that were made. The old Syriac was eventually put into the Peshitta. There are lots of other translations. The Gothic, the Armenian, the Georgian, the Ethiopic, the Slavonic. We're able to compare these with the New Testament Greek, and they are a big, big help. In addition to the Greek manuscripts and the ancient translations, we also have the writings of the so-called church fathers. These were men who lived from the lifetime of the Apostle John at the end of the first century through the next several hundred years after that. Many of these names you're familiar with. Clement, Irenaeus, Cyprian, Justin Martyr, Eusebius, Origen, Augustine, Tatian, Tertullian, Marcion, Gregory, Chrysostom, and many, many others. These were speakers and writers who produced commentaries and sermons and debates. There's a 30-volume set of these works that's available that some of you probably have on your computers. The point is that in the writings of these so-called church fathers, we have thousands upon thousands of quotations from the New Testament. So we compare their quotation with the Greek manuscripts and the ancient versions, and we find that we have an additional plethora of evidence by which to reconstruct the New Testament. So extensive are these patristic citations from the so-called fathers that if all of our other sources of knowledge of the rest of the, of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, these alone would be sufficient to reconstruct practically the entire New Testament. They quoted from it that much. They were a lot like some of the old-time preachers that some of you have known who would, at a certain point in their sermon, they'd just quote a chapter of the Bible, then a little later they'd quote another chapter out of the Bible. The so-called Uh, Church fathers, in many cases, are much like that. Great and lengthy quotations from the New Testament. The Greek manuscripts, the ancient versions, and the patristic citations provide the mountain of evidence by which we are able to know that we have established the text of the New Testament. Now, the time between the writing of the original books of the New Testament and the earliest surviving copies is relatively brief. The amount of manuscript evidence for the text of the New Testament is far greater than any that's available for any other ancient author. Just give you a few examples here. Everybody's heard of Plato. The time span between the original of Plato and the oldest copy that we have of Plato now is 1,200 years. 
And you know how many copies of Plato we have? We've got seven copies of Plato. Herodotus is the father of history, but 1,300 years separates when he wrote from the oldest copy of his stuff that we have now, and we've only got eight copies. Thucydides wrote about the Peloponnesian War, 1,300 years dividing when he wrote it from what we have now, and only eight copies. Euripides wrote plays, 1,300 years, nine copies. Caesar wrote about some of the wars that he fought. A thousand years, ten copies. Tacitus, who wrote a very important history of Rome. A thousand years divides what we have now from when he originally wrote, and there were all, are only 20 copies. Aristotle, very famous philosopher. 1,400 years, only 49 copies. Homer, 500 years, 643 copies. But the New Testament, just a few decades separate it from the copies, some of the copies that we have now. John stopped writing about 100 A.D., and the John Ryland's fragment that I mentioned a while ago dates back to 125 A.D. We're talking about just decades here. We're talking about a little piece of somebody's lifetime so that somebody could remember whether it was correct or not. Here's what Westcott and Hort had to say. They were New Testament scholars. We'll have say, more to say about them tomorrow, perhaps. In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone among ancient prose writings. God knew that the original autographs would not survive and that his word would have to be transmitted through the centuries via copies. And God did this on purpose. This was the means of transmission that God himself selected for the New Testament. God could have waited until we had printing presses and copy machines in order to put the New Testament out. He could have done it that way had he chosen to. But he gave the original in what he knew was the fullness of the time. The transmission process he chose is sufficiently flexible for God's word to be conveyed by uninspired and imperfect copyists. So we're talking about this process, this transmission process of how we wound up with the Bible, especially the New Testament, as we have it today. How did that transmission process proceed? And Lord willing, we'll talk a little more about that tomorrow afternoon.